Hello, listeners and fellow book lovers. Welcome to The Book Snug, a bi-weekly conversational podcast about books and the reading life. My name is Stephanie. And I'm Julia. We're a mother and a daughter who love reading and talking about books, the ones we adore and the ones we don't. We're delighted you're here, so grab your favorite hot drink or ice-cold beverage and settle in for another cozy, bookish chat. Hi, Mom. Hi, Julia. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Good. I'm good. It's a wonderful time of year, and I love all the pretty lights outside. And Yeah, so we had snow yesterday yes, and, and this snow morning. today. Yes. Loving all of it. Yes. Are you in the Christmas mood any more than you were last time? I'm better. Oh, good. <laughs> I had a moment last night in the midst of the crazy <laughs> decorating since I'm just now finishing mm-hmm. up decorating my house where I just felt very scroogey. But mm. now the house is decorated mm-hmm. and we only have to put ornaments on, and lights on the tree mm. and then we'll be done. Then I'll feel, so I'll feel better. You're less scroogey. Much okay, less. Good. Yeah. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Good. <laughs> My office is fully decorated for Christmas, except my ex- specific office. So uh-huh. I feel kind of in my own scroogey corner, but okay. it's fine. <laughs> Friends, welcome back to the podcast. If you're a return listener, if you are new here, welcome to the book snug. Uh, we hope that this is a cozy place for you to hang out. Yes. Today, we are doing one of our f- series. I think we have a couple of series on the show. This yes. is a favorite reoccurring one. Where we have a guest on the show, they tell us what book we have to read, and then we talk about it. And yes. we call this our three peas in a pod. Today's guest is my youngest brother, um, and he's recently engaged, so send him your congratulations. <laughs> World Meet Aaron. Thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> We're so glad to have you here. Aaron, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm Julia's youngest brother, obviously, and mom's youngest son. I work for a landscaper, and I'm in school for construction management currently. Obviously, as Julia said, I'm recently engaged to uh, Paige Haldeman, a recent guest on the show. Yeah, she did the secret history Mm -hmm. with us. In my free time, I enjoy being outdoors. Not so much now when it's barely freezing and snowing, (laughs) but you get what you get. Mm -hmm. What specifically do you like to do outdoors? Hunting, fishing, I've done backpacking, so pretty much just about everything you can do. Yeah. You're in school for construction management, so do you have a goal of what you want to do with that? Uh, I would like to try and get a job in that field at some point here soon. Mm -hmm. Anything specific or just a job? Just a job. Got it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Aaron, uh, since you are a bit of a history buff, which I know we're going to get back to in a second... You recommended Heart of Darkness for us to read. And I didn't know that this was a classic before we got started reading it. So I think we're going to have a very lively discussion. And I know growing up that you were an avid reader as well. I don't think you and I shared books as much as Mark and I did or you and Mark did. But to get to know you a little bit as a reader, Mom and I have some rapid questions for you. Okay, we're going to just popcorn this back and forth. The first question I have is, when you read, what is your main motivation? Do you read for entertainment, uh, to get away from it all, for knowledge, curiosity, to grow, learning a skill, FOMO, all of the above, none of the above? I would probably say knowledge or curiosity. What does that mean as far as 
type of book that you pick up? Well, I predominantly read nonfiction, and I was in a bit of a like a kick for early medieval history, so I read a bunch of books about that recently. Okay. Sorry, I jumped the gun. That's not even a question that's on our no, list. No, that's fine, but you do have the next question. <laughs> oh, okay. So question number two, if you could only read one genre or type of book for the rest of your life, what would it be? I think you both know the answer yeah. to this, but it's it's history books. Yes. Nonfiction specifically. Yeah. yeah. That's no surprise. What draws you to those types of books? I have no idea, honestly. It happened as a, a young kid, like before in the primordial sense of my being. I have no idea <laughs> where that came from, but yeah. I've been hooked ever since. I can testify <laughs> to this. Um, even when Aaron was little, like preschool little, mm-hmm. we watched a lot of History Channel. Mm-hmm. So history has always been, I think, a constant uh, curiosity for Aaron. Well, Liberty Kids was on reruns every Saturday. Yes, on PBS. Without fail. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember there was quite a lot of upset if it wasn't on one week or whatever it was. Okay, so outside of your history realm of living, is there any type of author or genre or series that you just, for the life of you, cannot get into? Well, when I was in elementary school, it was kind of the heyday of like dystopians, like the Hunger Mm. Games, Maze Runner. I never really read any of those, and it never really tickled my peach. Okay. Should we let Tickle My Peach be on there? You know what? It's fine. It sounds a little obscene. Haven't you ever yes. heard that phrase? But not strikes, just normal. Strikes your fancy. That I've yes. heard. Yes. Strikes my fancy. Tickles my peach is not <laughs> Butters my biscuits. Is there you it? go. That's, that's better. <laughs> Question number four. What is most important? Character development? Plot? writing or the message of the story in the in the fiction i read which it's gotten to be more fiction as like the past couple years have gone by but uh plot is probably the biggest thing for me okay that makes sense considering the books i know that you Mm -hmm. are reading do you have a favorite book i i don't know if i do (laughs) (laughs) how about uh not the most favorite fiction, but a favorite fiction book or series? I really read Game of Thrones a couple of years ago, and I really enjoyed that. Okay. By George R.R. R. R. Martin. Mm-hmm. I, I can't really think of anything else. You read Jules Verne, too, though, didn't you? That was a long time ago, so I'd have to go okay. back and reread those. I enjoyed them, but I yeah. don't, I don't recall remember. much of the story. Yeah. Gotcha. yeah. Okay. Do you have a book that you have recently read that you feel like you could recommend to someone? Actually, a lot of what I read this summer, specifically on our family beach trip, was uh, pretty good. I read Galapagos by Kurt Vonnegut, and I recommended that to my now fiancé, Paige, and Mm. she read it, and now she likes Kurt Vonnegut, too. I read Moby Dick, and I actually really liked it. Okay. By Herman Melville. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I picked up a book at a bookstore down at the beach called um, Adams to Ashes, I think. It's about uh, nuclear disasters, and so I recommended that to my brother Mark because he's really into mm-hmm. nuclear stuff like that, so mm-hmm. that okay. was good. All right. Three books. Well, I heard about the Kurt Vonnegut yeah. book yeah, I before. Yeah, think she talked about that one. And Game of Thrones, yeah. I'm familiar with. Did you watch the Game of Thrones show? I have, I think, watched up to the fourth season, okay. and then me and Paige are going to rewatch it, and neither, both of us are in school, so we 
don't yeah. really feel like watching hour-long shows that involve thinking, so. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and they're very emotional. Like, you have to get emotionally invested mm-hmm. in them. I just, everybody dies, so I think I gave up around the fourth Well, and I know season. a spoiler. <laughs> like, I accidentally learned a spoiler way before I was ever going to watch the show, so I know how it ends. Yeah. And I know nobody likes the last season. So I'm like, (laughs) from what I've heard, the fourth season is about where it tails off from the actual books. Even though George R.R. Martin was involved in writing the series, I don't think the last book is going to quite track how the series goes. Well, and maybe that's why he's not ever going to finish the series, because the show finished first. Yeah. And if he was involved in writing the show, why would he write? From what I've read, the way he writes books, he kind of wrote himself into a corner and can't figure out how to get himself out of that corner. Mm. Okay. So... And that's frustrating. We'll see. Maybe it'll go the way of Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. They've been waiting for the ending of that story for Mm. over a decade. I I think think Game of Thrones, they've been waiting for all but 20 years. I think think the first ones came out in the early 2000s. Okay. I think people have just kind of assumed that it's just going to be an (laughs) open-ended conclusion. Because he write he like a lot of the Game of Thrones books, they're all big books, like five, six hundred pages. And they came out like, year back to, to year back, to like almost saw uh, what's what's that fancy writer who just pumps him out like big brandon sanderson yes uh, i could not remember his name but yes yeah yeah okay well jumping off of that my question is a bit of a downer now do you have a least favorite book honestly i don't think i do i a lot of books just kind of ride the middle for me like okay no thoughts either way. Was there any book in school that you hated to read? Scarlet Letter. Well, I think I didn't. Agrees. I don't remember that much because I listened to it and was doing other stuff. So, uh-huh. yeah. Yeah. Aaron and I were talking about the Scarlet Letter. I don't know. Recently, I I also hated that mm-hmm. in high school. There's just so much about it that was irritating. Not age to me. appropriate. I don't think. <laughs> well, nothing happens. <laughs> Well, and what does happen is not talked about in a constructive way with teenagers. <laughs> okay, so Scarlet Letter gets to be on somebody else's poopy list. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a book that you dislike that a lot of other people really seem to like? I don't really read popular books, so I can't exactly think of any. Okay. You you didn't read any of the dystopian, so you can't even say I read it and didn't like it, and everybody else did. So okay, maybe this is a controversial. Maybe I'm purposefully poking something. But did you read the Harry Potter books? I did. Or is that just that kind was of actually, the middle of the line? Those were the first chapter books I ever read. Seriously? Yeah. Okay. And I mean, I liked them as a kid, but like I'm not yeah. a Potterhead by any means no, or anything sure. like that. I don't hate them. They're just kind of they exist. Yeah. Okay. They were a good experience in your childhood, but mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Uh, do you have a favorite author? Obviously, George R. R. Martin's up there in nonfiction. Um, I like Peter W. Toll. He writes a lot of naval histories. Like I just worked through a trilogy on the Pacific War, okay. uh, Pacific Theater of World War Two. So exciting! <laughs> you actually, yeah. you got me one of those for Christmas. I know. <laughs> and I'm being a smartass. I'm sorry. Um. <laughs> Uh, I like Kyle Harper. He wrote a book on the downfall of Rome, but looking at like environmental and epi- diseases. Yes. I can't say the actual word. Mm. Epidemiology. And, yes. Yeah. And uh, my now fiance Paige got me a book about, it's called Plagues Upon the Earth. It's a, a history of disease throughout the whole of human mm-hmm. history. I haven't got around to reading that because my TBR is like 25 books long at this point. Yeah. But. What are you currently reading? 
So I actually read a couple books at a time, but I try to do like two nonfiction and a fiction. Fiction-wise, I'm reading Whirlwind, Whirlwind by James Clavell. Okay. That one's taken me a while because it's 1,300 that, pages. It's so a I've chunkster. Been, I've been working through that pretty slowly. Um, I'm reading uh, The Perfect Storm by Sebastian Younger. Yes, that's a great book. It is. It's very sad, but yeah. he writes like... He writes very well, but takes like very traumatic experiences and writes them very well. Yes. Because I think when we were coming back from Wales, I read uh, War, which is he was embedded in some units in Afghanistan and wrote about that. And then it got turned into the movie Restrepo, okay. or the documentary Restrepo. Very good. Like He writes extremely well. And then uh, I'm reading The Prize. It's a book about the history of the global oil industry. Okay. That's I, I'm enjoying that one so far, too. That's more contemporary mm -hmm. history. Um, yeah, the I picked it up at a library book sale in the books from the 90s, but it's it's still very readable. Sebastian Younger's uh, book, The Perfect Storm, is also a movie, I'm pretty sure. I had a cardiologist recommend that book to me years ago when I was working in mm -hmm. a cath lab. And I read it. I remember reading it in a couple of days. It's suspenseful and very propulsive. Mm -hmm. Hard, it's hard reading because he talks about drowning, what it would be like mm. to drown in a ship that gets overturned. Well, I bought it on a whim because I was listening to Nerdy, but a, a history podcast about the Vikings. And the guy was talking about like being in a Viking ship, an open Viking ship in the North Atlantic. And he had mentioned stuff like the hydrology that Sebastian Younger talks about in The Perfect Storm. And so on a whim, I was like, I'll, I'll buy it and read it. And yeah. then so I'm I'm going to fly through that and probably finish it this weekend. Yeah, it's very good. Very good, but very hard. Well, I think you answered this next question, but are you, are you enjoying what you're currently reading? Yeah, I, since I had the script ahead of time, I kind of I, <laughs> I figured some stuff out. <laughs> okay, this is kind of a different question. Are you a once and done reader, or do you return to certain books over and over again? I'll reread occasionally, like if it's something I really liked, or when I was younger and I didn't have a ton of books, I would read some of those a couple times, but mm -hmm. most of the time it's one and done, but I will read, read from time to time. Is there a book that you can think of that you reread? I used to reread it a lot, and I just reread it, I think, last year. It's The Summer of 49 by David Halberstam. Okay. When we were younger, our grandparents took us, took us on a camping trip to the Poconos, and we went to a bookstore, and I got it. And I was obsessed with baseball as a little kid. And it's a book about baseball. And obviously, the summer of 1949, I couldn't tell you how many times I've reread that book. And I reread it recently just because like, I forgot what I forgot it. So I was like, I'll reread it. And yeah. It's still pretty good. So would you say that was an all-time favorite, maybe? I guess. I mean, it's not really anymore, but it's a book I read a lot. Numerous times. Okay. Do you consider listening to audiobooks reading? Absolutely. So... Since I work for a landscaper, we do a lot of stuff like trimming, and I have Bluetooth ear earbud or earmuffs, so I can block out sound, but I can also listen to stuff. So I'll spend a lot of time listening to audiobooks, and mm -hmm. that makes up probably a third of what I've read this year is audiobooks at work. I agree, a hundred percent. I agree. Audiobooks are reading. 
<laughs> what about you, Julie? <laughs> I just, my mind wanders too easily. Yeah. So I have found if I'm listening to a book, and I struggled with that with Heart of Darkness, where I'm listening, I'm engaged, but if I'm listening to it, I'm doing the dishes, then I'm thinking, oh, I have to get this pot clean because I'm making, I need it for lunch tomorrow, and then, oh, tomorrow is this, and then, and then I just yeah. start wandering, and then you five miss minutes part later, of I don't story. know what's going so, on. Then you have to constantly be going back. Right. And then it's just, then I am out of the story. The key is just turn your brain off, and so it's just the... <laughs> just the book and like you're just on autopilot but then I fall asleep it's like a zen meditation yeah. no then I fall asleep so I have it on while I'm doing other things because of the yeah the whatever but then it so it's a very fine line I walk yeah I did enjoy this one though so okay I did too on audiobook yeah. for the bit of it that I did next questions we're going to ask are quick yes no answers and Julie and I again we're just going to go back and forth so the first question is do you prefer fiction or nonfiction? It's pretty obvious, but nonfiction. Yeah. A hardback or paperback? Paperback. Do you like to buy books or do you like to borrow them? Buy. Bookmarks or dog ears? Bookmarks. Do you finish books completely whether you like them or not? Or are you okay with putting them aside and DNFing or do not finishing? I will brute force my way to finish a book. Okay. <laughs> Paige said something similar. She yeah. said, I'm going to finish it out of spite. <laughs> Yeah, 100%. Okay. I don't understand that at all, but so be it. <laughs> you guys do you. That's all I'm I mean, there's say. a reason we're getting married. <laughs> you understand each other. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Julia, you want to do the wait, last question? Okay. On that point, what I loved when you're engaged, when you guys, you know, put your stuff up on social media that you were engaged... Her comment of morale has improved significantly made me laugh because well, that was such a, like, that's just the relationship that you do have. That comes from when we went to the beach, I, we got koozies and it's a pirate thing. And it says the beatings will continue until morale improves. And so we've jokingly said that to each other. And she said a while ago, but before we got engaged, she said like a wedding picture or engagement picture will be morale has improved. And so morale has improved. So the beatings can stop. <laughs> that's actually really stinking cute. <laughs> Okay. No, I do not beat Paige. <laughs> Actually, that's Thank a good disclaimer. <laughs> I mean, we know that, but maybe yeah. our listeners are questioning. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure she'd hit you back too if you tried. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> we love you, Paige, if you're listening. <laughs> okay, the last question here is, why did you pick this book for us to talk about? So, obviously, with reading history a lot, um, you read a lot of traumatic stuff and stuff that happened. But the first time I read this... I actually had to stop. Like it was dark enough, I had to stop a couple times while reading it because it was just almost felt overwhelming. Mm. And you wanted us to do the overwhelmingness. Yeah, with I was you? Gonna yeah, say absolutely. You us okay, to good. share in the misery. Yeah. You heard me griping him, complain about all the other books, and you wanted me to. Well, I know you didn't like Secret History, so I was like, maybe you might like this one. <laughs> he might. He might have gambled a little too hard. <laughs> no risk it, no biscuit. For our listeners, um, the way that we do this discussion as we get into the book here is we use the call pile system. And we're going to have the link to the original creator in our description. Yes, it's a YouTube channel called Book Roast. Mm -hmm. And I'll put the link there. Yeah. And so with the call pile, um, it's truly an acronym. So we're going to take time and talk about each of the letters, the characters, the atmosphere, writing, the plot or theming, intrigue and interest, logic and relationships, enjoyment, and then the overall rating. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, I will say that these discussions are full of spoilers. So if this book is on your TBR, or if maybe you have to read it for school, be mindful that we're going to talk about the book in its entirety. Yeah. 
Mom, why don't you hop into the synopsis? Okay. I'm just going to give a very brief synopsis of the story. It's This is a novella, basically, Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad. And then once I'm done, because we have a history buff here, Aaron is going to give us a little bit of background context for the story of what was actually happening in the Belgian Congo around that time, how we got to this particular story and what was going on. So Heart of Darkness is, it is a nested story or a framed narrative, which means you start off thinking you're getting one thing and then a person in the story starts telling another story. So in this book, we have four men on a ship in the Thames, and it's about dusk, and they're just sitting there waiting for the river to do what they want it to so that their ship can go where they want it to go. And while they're waiting, one of the men starts telling a story of an experience he had several years earlier as the captain of a steamer in the Belgian Congo. And basically the whole center part or the majority of this whole story is his experience of being accepted by the company, which is capital C company Mm -hmm. and sent to Africa. His experiences with how the native people in Africa are treated, how the employees of the company behave and then he meets this one particular man that everybody is enthralled with named Kurtz and you are introduced to him and you get to know what type of person he really is and then the story wraps around and comes back to the four men on the boat at the end that's basically all I'm going to say because we're going to talk about everything within the story pretty much in depth is there anything you wanted to add, Aaron? You no. I think I did an okay job. Yeah, I was covering the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you want to tell us a little bit about what the Belgian Congo was, what 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 white people were doing there at that time in history? It, this would have been what, late 1800s? Yeah. Okay. So to understand uh, colonialization in Africa, you kind of have to go the whole way back to like the 1600s. Really, if you wanted to, you could go the whole way back to Columbus in that early 1500s age of exploration but from like the 1600s to early 1800s when the slave trade was abolished europeans would send manufactured goods to africa to trade for slaves and they would then send those slaves to the new world to make raw materials like sugar tobacco that sort of stuff cotton yeah Yeah. which would then get sent back to europe it's called the triangular Mm -hmm. trade so then around early 1800s the slave trade goes away as the, at the same time, Europe starts really industrializing, like the start of the Industrial Revolution. So they need markets for manufactured goods, and they need more raw materials to feed those industries. The big nations like France, the UK, they gobble up most of the land. Like France is in Algeria. The UK gets into South Africa, Egypt, all that. But some smaller nations start getting some land too. The only two places not colonized are Liberia and Ethiopia. And there's an argument Liberia was colonized, but that's kind of beyond the scope of this. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a lot of competition, like a lot of nations fighting over ground and resources, especially like rubber, ivory, that sort of stuff. So there was an international congress in Berlin, uh, 1883 to 1884, to decide boundaries and that sort of stuff. 
out of that, uh, the, in 1885, Belgium gets the Congo. It's called the Congo Free State. It's a, technically a personal possession of King Leopold II. He got it by saying he was going to do like humanitarian and philanthropic things. Um, that's a lie. <laughs> well, if this book is any indication, <laughs> right. it absolutely is a lie. It ended up being uh, for personal gain, and there was a lot of brutality. This book won't get into the rubber traits about ivory, but there was a lot of rubber plantations. And what they would do to make sure people actually worked was they would, or if they didn't produce enough rubber, they would cut off hands and feet, mm-hmm. kidnap families, you know, generally yeah. not being a very nice person. Yeah, like mob mm. tactics. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, the most basic reason Africa was colonized was because of greed. People wanted money. The colonies were national, but um, they're basically run by companies for profit. So like think of the East India Company and parts of the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Basically a a company with the power of the state behind. Mm. So like they can use military force and all that. Well, that's not scary. No, not at all. Great. <laughs> um, a fun fact that's not really related. Um, at the height of the tulip boom in the 1630s, the Dutch East India Company was the uh, high, roughly the highest valued company ever. And Jeez. throughout history. Yes. yes. Speculatively, but it would have been worth roughly $7 trillion in today's money. Wow. But that was also because they were the first publicly traded company. But mm-hmm. mm. yeah. yeah. So Jeez. at that time, trade was a very big business. Okay. And that's what was really pushing everything that was happening in the here in the Belgian Congo yeah. in our story. Yeah. So money. But that's why the ivory is such a big deal in the book, right? Because yeah, of the, it's, yeah. 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 Like yeah. ivories and pianos and all yeah, other yeah. sort of stuff. Yeah. And it, it's a luxury good. Like imagine being yes. a wealthy English aristocrat and you have this nice elephant tusk in your uh, country mm. home. Mm-hmm. Plus jewelry. Jewelry, mm-hmm. hair yeah. pieces. Yes. Yeah. Combs. Furniture, mm-hmm. inlays, yeah. uh, everything. Yeah. Well, and we're building into what would be uh, the Gilded Age. To a degree. I think we're kind of on the back end, depending on how you'd want to... into it, right? Yeah, this well, this story was written in the 1890s, like late yes, 1890s, okay. end of Victorian era, start mm-hmm. of the Edwardian. Yeah. The journey Joseph Conrad went on was in the 1880s, like 1880. Okay. Like right after uh, Samuel Livingston explored the Congo River. Mm. Oh, okay. okay. So the reason I mention that is I'm watching The Gilded Age right now on HBO, HBO. But it's about these big, fancy, like Vanderbilt, Biltmore style homes. And as we're talking about this ivory inlaid, I just, I think of these homes that probably used it in not silly ways, but in incredibly decorative ways to show off their wealth. Yeah. I mean, I don't think any of the American like um, robber barons were in the African trade. Because right, no, no I'm not but saying they, they were, were purchasing. They were definitely purchasing luxury goods. And a lot of those were probably tainted by, you know, pseudo slavery in Africa. Yeah. Yeah. Love that for us. I mean, if you have that much money, who needs morals? <laughs> well, that's it. That's it. <laughs> you know we're going to talk. We're actually going to talk. Yeah, we are going to talk about, about that. that. <laughs> well, then let's go ahead and jump in to our conversation, starting with our characters, because I think that's where we see some of this immorality come into play. <laughs> yes. Who wants to jump off there with their characters? I mean, there's not a ton of characters. Mm-hmm. There are not. Uh, not many named characters. Like right. there's Marlowe, the main character, the guy telling the story. Yes. Um, Let's talk about him first. Because I think he plays an important role mm-hmm. in the story. Um of course he's our storyteller. 
but he singles himself out. He says he's not like other seamen, Mm. that most seamen are quote unquote homebodies. They like their ship Mm -hmm. and they like the ocean, but they're not curious people. Like when they go into port, they sail all over the world, but when they go into port, spending one day at the port is good enough for them. They don't need to know anything else. Mm. And Marlo says that he is curious. He's always wanted to explore the world and he wants to know Mm -hmm. things. And he does a lot of pondering. So he really becomes like a philosopher in this story. That a lot of, a lot of his, I don't want to say musings or ramblings because he's not, but in a lot of his storytelling, there's a lot of philosophy and a lot of reflection that's layered on top of things, both about the world and about his own self, too. Yeah. Yeah. And the things that he's seeing. Yeah. He also, when he's in Africa, he doesn't want to spend time with the other white people because he doesn't like how they behave. Mm-hmm. But he's also not comfortable with the native people. So he becomes kind of like a loner observer. Sleeping on a ship. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't do a whole lot of interaction. But he does a lot of observing. And that's where his story comes Mm -hmm. from. Anything we missed about Marlo? Not that I can think of. He is. I mean, of the four men on the ship at the beginning, they are all friends. And Mm -hmm. it sounds like they are good friends. Like they spend time with each other Mm -hmm. outside of being on the ship. Mm Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, he is capable of having relationships with people, but Mm -hmm. he definitely did not want to be involved in the people Mm -hmm. of the company. Like, it didn't take him long to figure out it was not a Mm -hmm. good thing. Well, the all the guys on the ship, it's like the accountant and a lawyer and somebody else. It's maybe they're part of the actual the company. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and to spoil a little bit, his aunt got him the job on the steamer. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I guess she had made some representations that he was different and super smart. Mm-hmm. And so maybe he is somehow connected to the the, the leadership of the company. Maybe uh, that he's working for that owns the ship he's yes. on. Yeah. Yeah. The, peop- the trading company. Yeah. Right. Um, the other thing I think is interesting, too, is I think his aunt represents him as almost like a missionary Mm. because he's supposed to be this morally upstanding person. And he finally just says to the manager at one point, that's not me. I'm, I'm sorry. Everybody thinks that's me, but that's not me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm just here to do a job. I don't want to, I'm not here to save people. Well, I think a question is, do we think that he is not the good guy or the bad guy, but how would we classify him in the rest of the characters? Is he quote-unquote good, or is he quote-unquote bad in terms of everything else that's going on? Am I asking that in a way that's... No, I, that makes no, sense. I would probably say neutral. Yeah. yeah. Like, he doesn't... He doesn't, like, do anything bad, but he's also not necessarily good. Like, he does have some of the casual racism of his time, mm. But he also, he views the African people as people. Yeah. Like there was one point where he like, he was talking about the African people running into the bush when Europeans came. And he's like, I wonder what would happen if people showed up in England, all the country yokels are going to run away and do the same thing. Yeah. Uh, I guess we should say in this story, Marlo is Joseph Conrad. He is actually the author's. Mm mouthpiece Mm -hmm. really Mm -hmm. and he does start off like aaron said talking like he's being philosophical and he's saying there was a time in history 
when Great Britain was the heart of darkness. Mm. And when the Romans came, they were coming to conquer and they were coming for financial reasons to expand the empire, to trade and bring things back Mm -hmm. to Rome. And he was talking about what the Romans would have been like and what the people in England would have been like. And that's how he started the whole conversation about Africa. And instead of going up the Thames, we were going up the Congo. Well, and I didn't even think about that. I must be full of shows tonight. I don't know. Maybe I'm tired. (laughs) But there's another show, and I think it's on Netflix, of the Romans invading Germany, of that kind of same thing of like these people are all savages or all wild. They need Mm -hmm. to be tamed. And so maybe this idea of the heart of darkness of these, I don't like to use the word savages, but of like, but that's how they are. Right. Mm -hmm. Of this unknown people group um, of that's how it's perceived by this conquering group. And so maybe it's not unique to Africa. Maybe it's this conquering idea or even Columbus or Leif Erikson entering America for the first time and and seeing the native people. Mm -hmm. It's just like any group that is, I guess, more advanced like has better technology and yeah. a more a higher functioning mm-hmm. state they see someone a group of people who does not and say oh they're not civilized when they could easily be civilized in their own way mm-hmm. it's just not a way you notice right. right or that makes sense to your your knowledge of civilization or how yeah how you define civilized because they could be an extremely moral people and not be technologically advanced mm-hmm. and some people would view that as highly civilized mm-hmm. well so. and it I think I'm going to jump to writing for a second. Um, he makes a, I think he makes a point as he is meeting all of the um, white people, a part of the company of how they're dressed and the customs that they're maintaining. And then when he's seeing the, um, the African people, he makes a point of saying, you know, they're not closed or I see a lot of breasts or things like that. And also kind of looking at their clothing as another aspect of civilized versus uncivilized as well. Yeah, that's very true. So who else should we talk about? That yeah. was, did we even name the main yeah, that character? that was Marlo. Marlo. Is his first name Charlie? I, I, don't, I don't know. Even I don't know. think so. Okay, I don't think there's Marlo. any, yeah. I don't think anyone has a first name. Mm-hmm. The other big person who's actually named in this book is Kurtz. Mm-hmm. And he's this enigma mm-hmm. that Marlo wants to find out mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. Anybody want to talk about Kurtz? I, well, we don't actually meet him until the last third of the book. Like it's no, third. and Marlo thinks he's dead at one point. Yeah, yeah. Well, everybody, everybody does he's because yeah. I get like in the story. I don't know how it is in actual history, but in the story, there'd be these trading posts up the river, and basically be one guy there, and his job was just collect ivory. And so, if you didn't hear from him, you didn't hear from him. Mm-hmm. I just assumed that he died because everybody died. Yeah. <laughs> Because Africa is not exactly the, the most hospitable place to right. Europeans. Right. People got malaria and dysentery. And, right. Yeah. And the doctor at the beginning of the book during the wellness check was like, well, maybe I'll see you back. Maybe I won't. Yeah. Well, I, so. think, I think the doctor says something like nobody comes back from there the same. Yeah. Maybe yeah. alluding to like, the heart of darkness type thing. Or, mm-hmm. you know, you get malaria and just have malaria for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And I, I have friends who have had malaria and it is no joke. It is. No, it's it's bad. Yeah. What else do we want to say about Kurtz when we finally do meet him? Because we do meet him. What what did you find interesting about his character? Or maybe you didn't find anything interesting about him. He He's kind of chalked up, I think, for most of the book as being this exceptional dreamer 
with big ideas and a big personality. And um, when we finally meet him, he's a very broken, sick man. Right. Physically. Um, Yes. And at least for me, because I think characters like how he's initially described, they're very interesting for me to read. And we don't get to see a lot of that character throughout the book. Um, So it's just very interesting to me how that was written. And it's almost like this, the reputation is preceding him so that when you do meet him, are are we supposed to be disappointed? Are we supposed to be sad that he's dying? It, it, it leaves us in a very odd, how do we, how do we approach this Kurtz character now? What do you think, Aaron? Well, it, it almost seems like a letdown. Like they build up, like he's this, I kind of like what was saying. He's this amazing person. Like he's just, he produces more ivory than the rest of the company combined. Mm-hmm. And then you meet him and he's dying and like, a little bit he actually talks to Marlo trying to get Kurtz back down the river mm-hmm. it doesn't seem like he's this huge thinker or anything like this it's just kind of yeah, he's just yeah. he's he just there broken. yeah, yeah. He's, he sounds like, kind of like an average person who somehow found their way into a lot of ivory mm-hmm. yeah I I found him fascinating because he he did seem like just an an average man, and yet he was able to manipulate the people, the tribal people mm-hmm. around him to the point where they basically would do anything he said. They gave him their wealth. I mean, he was getting his ivory from them. He wasn't mm-hmm. just finding it or mm-hmm. killing elephants. Okay. He was taking it from mm-hmm. the tribal people uh, and just... I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. I, I wrote that he he's intelligent and educated, but he ended up being a devious, manipulative man who somehow had some kind of charisma that captured not just the native people of Africa, but the people in the company. Mm-hmm. Like they thought he was some kind of super duper well, person. Poor Russian young man that got yeah. swept into all okay, of that. Okay, let's too. talk about him, the the Harlequin. That's how yeah. Marlowe describes him. He was completely almost like um it was almost like a cult. He was like he saw Kurtz as this demigod mm-hmm. or something. Wow. And it- at one point, he says, I haven't slept for 10 days. So I think that played a little bit into that, too. <laughs> I think they were all crazy. Just yeah. a little. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's not even just like the people. It's not even like the, the company or the, the Africans. Even uh, Kurtz's fiance, I guess, yes. was completely insane. Yeah. yeah. Completely enamored with him. And she obviously did not know him at all. Mm-mm. No. Like, at all. And she kept saying she did. Like, yeah. I know him completely. Yes. Or, yeah. She. Well, bedazzled like she yes. they, they're all bedazzled by him and it's just this man mm-hmm. <laughs> i don't know well and that for me that was interesting too about how he kept saying things like my intended my intended and it feels like a like for the most part he's talking about my ivory that i'm this is my ivory i've mm-hmm. this is mine and because i know that phraseology from like jane austen or things mm-hmm. like that i kept thinking oh he's engaged you know there's another woman involved but I didn't. I didn't actually expect there to be a legitimate woman at the end at of the, the end, story. I thought he was intended. just taken with this idea of his his prize or what he could achieve or whatever. And well, and here he is. I'm not saying that when he was living in Belgium, I guess is where he would have been from, and this woman was in Belgium, mm-hmm. that he did not love her, did not sure. share things with her, but he went to Africa. I'm pretty sure. There, there is a description of a 
tribal woman, woman, beautiful, powerful, yeah, yeah, that the everybody listened to. And I'm pretty sure that he had a relationship with her, and she Mm -hmm. probably thought she knew him too. So I don't know. It's just very interesting. I'm going to tap back a little bit to what you were saying before about his charisma and his ability to manipulate um, the tribal people. By the end of the story, I realized that's what it was. I realized that was a devious nature. Mm-hmm. But leading into that point, I just kept thinking, why is nobody else trying to make friends with the the native people? Like, that would be the legitimate way to do this. And I kept thinking, oh, this is what Kurtz has done because of the way that they would come out to uh, when they saw him off or when they mm-hmm. brought him in or, you know, to try to take care of him when he was sick. So maybe that does say a lot about his character, about how he was able to quote unquote make friends, um, but then was so shallow and superficial in that to just use it for for the ivory mm-hmm. too. But the way that the story is written, I didn't think it was devious until the very, very end. I just thought he just set out to make friends with the people. There was there was one part that made me think that he was brutally mm-hmm. ruling over the tribes that mm-hmm. he was coming into contact with. Do you know what I'm talking about? I can't say I do. I have an idea. The heads. Oh, yeah. The, the heads, heads of-, of the people on the post. Yeah. Oh, I definitely brain wandered at that point. Oh, my oh, word. Gosh. Okay. Do you want to say that part? Oh, yeah. They they finally get to Kurtz's trading post eventually, like yes. down up, up river. And when they get there, there's a whole bunch of heads on pikes you know vlad the impaler style around his trading post yes Mm. yep totally didn't take that part in when i was listening so he was using brutality Mm -hmm. as scare tactics partly to do what he wanted Mm -hmm. them to i think he he could do that because he felt like they already revered him yeah and so he just used it as power a power play well and the other thing too is when he when the Russian man is t- talking about his experience with Kurtz and he said, Kurt said, um, I will shoot you if you do not get out of the country because of whatever reason of, mm-hmm. I have the most ivory and I can prove it because I will shoot you or something like that. And I think that's when it switched for me of like, Oh, he's not just this friendly, friendly dreamer, big go getter motivated guy. There's actually like a don't mess with me. This is my stuff. Mm-hmm. Any other people we should talk about? Um, the manager maybe should make an appearance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I had that on my list too. What do you think of him? He almost seems kind of like a bumbling idiot almost. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Not that stuff's going on that he doesn't know about, but he just he seems like he got promoted beyond the level of his competence. Okay. And I, I think the jealousy plays a part in him yeah. too. And I think that maybe that's what's making him seem like a bumbling idiot because he's so jealous that he he's not mm-hmm. thinking straight. Of Kurtz yeah. because of what he's able yeah. to accomplish. Mm-hmm. I There's a lot of symbolism in this story. Joseph Conrad uses almost all of the characters to symbolize something. I just saw this guy as a representative of industry without a moral soul Mm. he did not he did what he was supposed to he absolutely did what he was supposed to but he did not do more than he had to and there was no conscience of whether it was right or wrong he just did it Mm -hmm. so that's how i saw the manager and it made i just remember marlo saying he made he made me uneasy Mm. 
Like I couldn't put my finger he, on what it was. I think he was. described his like almost like fish-like, like yes. kind of like dead yeah. behind the eyes. Yeah. So no soul, mm-hmm. totally dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. I think for the manager as well as the, the pilgrims, I guess yes. the other people at the station, they're yeah. kind of bit players, but like they kind of all talk the talk of like the white man's burden, like we're here to help civilize and all that, but yeah. either through incompetence stupidity brutality or greed mm-hmm. it, like those high-minded ideals kind of go down the drain mm-hmm. yeah and they were very quick to grab their winchesters and, to shoot. and start firing yeah, and, into nothing yeah. Yeah. right yeah yeah i i also put the pilgrims as idiots ignorant <laughs> <laughs> ignorant masses believing they are doing something good when mm-hmm. they are actually doing extreme harm and don't even see it well, ouch, that's just a whole powerful <laughs> statement right there. <laughs> I think we had to talk about the accountant, too. It's the first company person that Marlowe meets when he gets off the ship and is on Africa and is at the first, what what would you call it, the first company outpost? Like the trading post or station yes. or something. And he comes outside. Now he's in the midst of the jungle in this like totally ransacked area. He's dressed to the nines. Everything's pressed and clean and washed. His hair's done. He's carrying a parasol. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I just felt like that was so absurd <laughs> in this situation. Did Did you think anything about that? I mean, it's absurd, but it's also like, in a very not stressful but a very unnormal situation he's trying to cling to that mm. last little bit of normalcy he can yeah i think that's i do think that's true but i just i feel like he was blind he he was trying to maintain a civilized existence but totally blind to the brutality and the uncivilized behavior that was happening right where he was living. Was that was that the same post where there was the grove where all the, the African people would crawl into to die? To die, mm. starve and die. Yeah, so he has this, you know, he's all dressed to the nines, but yet, you know, yeah. 100 yards down the hill, there's Human a, mass, a mass grave, basically. Yeah. yeah, I think that's another message about something, about clinging to normalcy but to the point of blind blindness but there's another term that i'm looking for and i can't well, find like, it kind of like, like clinging to appearance appearances and trying to be like this highfalutin pretentious person but yet like there's people who are i don't want to say lesser but people lower like i don't know how to phrase it but like it, it well, feels like the bystander effect without the bystander effect. yeah you know right. like yes. i can't i like, don't know the term not I want. not stepping in and taking care of it because it's not your problem. It's not your problem. Yeah. I mean, I can think of biblical terms for this. Sure, Jesus addresses it all the time about wealthy people who walk past mm. people in yeah. need or people mm-hmm. who are suffering and not seeing, not seeing that, yeah. not seeing the the people who are the outliers and the quote unquote unloved or unlovable. It could be. I don't know if it is intended to be, but it could be a commentary on like Industrial Revolution England. And, you know, how you have the very rich, the yes. upper class, and the poor people would be living in slums and yes. tenement starving. buildings. Yeah, starving. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Their kids were dying because their lungs were filled or, with cotton. Or you'd have, uh, you'd have six-year-olds working in coal mines. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, when we were in Wales and mm-hmm. toward the mine, we absolutely heard that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And they'd have to sit there with a candle and close doors for ventilation. If the candle went out, they would just sit there in the dark for mm-hmm. 12 hours. Yeah. So... 
it, it could be. I mean, that would be the time of you know like the first international and like growing mm-hmm. socialist popularity. So yes. it, it could possibly. Mm-hmm. I don't know Joseph Conrad's politics or anything like that. Yeah, I mean he was he was originally Polish. And I think his his dad, if I remember correctly, was executed for um, taking part in one of the Polish mm. revolutions. Oh, I, really? I think the 1860s. Okay. And so there's definitely the possibility he has some radical politics. I have I have no idea. I didn't look into it or mm-hmm. anything, but that mm-hmm. is a, a possibility. It could be a commentary on that. I agree. And I think I'm going to take it a step further. It's like... Uh, you were talking earlier, Mom, and I don't remember if it was in the podcast or not, of this accountant guy um, having somebody to press his shirt. Yes. Right? It was a woman, an African woman. She hated doing it yeah. for him. Right. So this idea, and I might, I might say it kind of jumbled because I, it's processing, but it's like uh, us over here first world country complaining about traffic and complaining about slow internet or complaining about not being able to find your the nikes that you want right, to wear because they're right sold out, or everything yeah. is on you know i can't get anything in time for christmas right, right yeah. when there are people like i think about the the conflict going on in the middle east right now mm-hmm. or in um Ukraine. Thank you. That I knew it started with the U. <laughs> yeah. Um but that point right there of just like I think this accountant is to to an extent clinging to some type of some type of normalcy, right? But I think he's also a symbol. Yeah, yeah. a symbol of because of our privilege, our being mm-hmm. the the people that Joseph Conrad is commenting on, our privilege blinding us to maybe more urgent matters and more urgent concerns instead of oh is my shirt nicely pressed or is is my umbrella up and blocking the sun or like right. when there are true people dying right next to or me. Or when there are men <laughs> marching up the hill with shackles around mm-hmm. their necks and no food. Right. I mean, they they took this river trip and they took along Africans to help mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. and gave them no food. Yeah. yeah. They were responsible for finding their own food. And they did bring food and <laughs> made them throw it away because they couldn't stand the smell of it. Mm-hmm. And I just, and and this is one instance where Marlowe notices it. Mm-hmm. He's not making any kind of positive or negative statement about it, but he he actually recognizes that the African people they're supposed to be cannibals, right? Mm-hmm. That's yeah, what he, says. he says, That's what he "Why calls aren't they them? eating us? They should be eating us because they're hungry." <laughs> because they're not. I know he's holding them like he's saying these people have something we do not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. because they are capable of this mm-hmm. which none of us no. here would have been mm-hmm. no which then doesn't surprise me when they respond the way that they do right. later in the book yeah okay i mean i feel like now it's maybe just time to touch on the atmosphere which i feel like we kind of dabbled in already i i do just want to say at least for me when the story starts on the thames it already starts feeling kind of anticipatory and kind of mysterious because it's at dusk, and for me, dusk is it's it's a storytelling time. It's a mystery time. It's mm-hmm. a sort of already starts like that. And when we get to Africa, I wrote. This is going to sound so strange, but I wrote ripply, like agitated, like the water is unsettled, like you feel that you're walking into something that's like brimming to explode. And then I wrote evil, but not evil for evil, or 
evil because it's unknown. Like you get this sense of like, are these people actually bad people? Uh, the 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 Africans, or are they bad because I'm told that they're bad? Because you don't really know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, Marlo, like that. That's how I felt he was processing this. Mm-hmm. So for atmosphere, I had like dreamlike. It almost felt surreal. Mm-hmm. Like it felt kind of like a, a waking nightmare. Everything was extremely well described, especially the forest. He did a very good job mm-hmm. describing the forest and like the unsettling nature of the forests but i don't know i agree i think it feels very very dreamlike yeah from dusk on the ship to the whole getting to africa Mm -hmm. and then the boat traveling up the river and this vegetation that's so thick and filled with shadows that you can't Mm -hmm. see beyond it then the fog comes in and Mm -hmm. you can barely see beyond that and there's all these shadowy figures Mm -hmm. It felt extremely dreamlike to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was one thing um, when they were coming. When he was on the steamer coming to the Congo, there was a French warship just shelling kind of indiscriminately, and all the crew was dying. And I thought that was kind of a, an interesting thing. It's like you might be trying to attack this continent, whether it be for resources or whatever, but the natural response of the continent is going to kill you mm-hmm. too. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I wrote words like suffering futility antithetical to the known world Mm -hmm. like for africa it just felt like it was this very solid place that just had no mercy no mercy for anybody Mm -hmm. that was coming in but it was also experiencing no mercy Mm -hmm. uh the phrase dreamlike um i listened to this and the ending of the book they had a little bit of music playing in the last little bit. And the way that Kenneth Branagh, who was the narrator, was was narrating at the end, it truly felt like I was entering into like this mystical dream space. Like, I don't know how... Um, do you know, this is a weird one, but on like Tower of Terror, how they do the little video and it feels all like mystical and magical. And they open Twilight Zone light. type stuff? Twilight Zone, yeah. Yeah, but like... Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. 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 Well, you were right. The yes. Twilight Zone is part of Tower of Terror, but like right. the, the surreal, like it's right. it's close enough to be real, but yeah, not quite. Like and something's it, off. Right, and then it feels like it's just opening you up into the ride. That's how the end of the book ended mm-hmm. on the audio. So it definitely captured this dream reality. What's going like? Yeah. It, it captured it really, really well. And I think marlo himself when he was in africa felt like it was a dream Mm -hmm. he felt like he was somewhere he had never been before and he was Mm -hmm. having a hard time finding context Mm -hmm. like he he just couldn't even think of anything in his life that could help him Mm -hmm. ground in in africa well it was like the when he was trying to fix the the steamer to go upstream and he needed rivets and there was no rivets there, but when he first got off the boat at the first station, there was he said there was rivets everywhere. It's kind of like a Yeah. Like why is it, why are they not where I need them to be? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, this has more to do with setting, not necessarily atmosphere, but Brussels. I'm pretty sure it's Brussels, the city that he goes to. I think they vaguely say it's they say the continent, so yeah. I'd assume it's somewhere either Low Countries or France. But yeah. I was thinking France initially, but you're very right; it could be Brussels. Too. He calls the city sepulchral, which means like a tomb. Yeah. And I was thinking, now this is biblical, but there are times in the Bible where Jesus calls the Hebrew leaders whitewashed tombs. Mm. 
that on the outside, Mm -hmm. they looked absolutely wonderful and they did everything they were supposed to do. But if you looked inside at all, everything was dead. Mm -hmm. And I think he was trying to make the connection that the company and the city where the company was flourishing, Mm -hmm. their souls were dead. Like Mm -hmm. they, they had no concept of the horrors that were going on in Africa and they didn't want to know. They wanted to be removed and they wanted to keep getting what was coming from there. Mm -hmm. And so they didn't want to have to deal with the, the real human horrors Mm -hmm. that were going on. Hmm. So I just thought that was interesting that he used that specific word. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Let's jump into the writing then. Okay. I think for it being written in the 1890s, which can definitely be hard to read sometimes, and this one can be a little like run on sentences and that sort of stuff. The writing is extremely good, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. Yes. They're like when you when I reread it the second time, which I read it earlier this year, and I read it again for this. The amount of foreshadowing you notice is actually kind of astounding, mm-hmm. but it's stuff you wouldn't pick up on if you didn't read it before, but there was a couple of lines I thought were um, very funny. I, un- I probably intentionally funny, but not like in the context of the story, they're not super funny. So before Marlowe goes to Africa, he has a checkup, like a physical with a doctor and the doctor is measuring his head and doing that sort of stuff. And Marlowe asks him, why is he doing it? He's like, because anyone who wants to go to Africa is scientifically interesting. So later on, when Marlo was actually in Africa, he said, I felt myself becoming scientifically interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought that was that was pretty funny. Yeah. And then when um, when Marlo gets to the station where his steamer is and he's starting to fix it up, the manager's uncle comes on something called the El Dorado Expedition, which they don't really mention it, but I assume it's looking for gold of some sort. Okay. They go off into the woods. And they obviously all die because it's white people going to the jungle of Africa. It's unprepared. Unprepared. It's not, yeah. it's, it doesn't take a They want to wear their to, fancy yeah. clothes. And, yeah. <laughs> doesn't take a, a super smart person tea. to figure yeah. that one out. But so they get word that the donkeys died. And so Marlowe says, I know nothing as to the fate of the less valuable animals. That's after he said the donkeys had died. So he was kind of saying that <laughs> the El Dorado expedition is not valuable. <laughs> Yeah, you wouldn't think there would be humor in no, a book like but this. He's but he's a little cheeky. Is, it's yeah. all like it's all it's not a satire, no. but it's almost biting. Like Gulliver's Travels is biting. Yes. And this some instances are almost biting like that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. But, but it's uh, so subtle. Oh, it's, I'm wondering it's extremely though, if, subtle. It's, if it's trying to be representative of Marlowe's personality, mm-hmm. like how he sees the world and the mm-hmm. things that he picks up on. It mm-hmm. could be. Um, this book also kind of kickstarted the fight for general human rights, yeah. specifically in the Belgian Congo. And so maybe part of it was like, I've su- I see how terrible it is here. Let me rip who's actually there and mm-hmm. see mm-hmm. see where it goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think because I listened to this, I think I was more aware of the humor than I think if I had read it. I think if I had been reading it, I think it would have just been, okay, Just I'm just tracking along. But Kenneth Branagh did such a fabulous job that I actually chuckled on a number of occasions. I I read this and listened, not at the same time, but I kind mm-hmm. of alternated I to help me get the book done. I did find that when I was listening, I picked up on the subtleties that Aaron's talking Mm -hmm. about. Whereas when I was reading, sometimes I got so hung up in actually the word, like Mm -hmm. what he was trying to say that I missed. I'm pretty sure I missed some things. Mm -hmm. 
I thought the writing, I thought the writing was fine. Once I got started, I thought it was pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. It wasn't hard reading. Mm-hmm. And there are some really beautiful passages. Yeah. Like when he's talking about the Thames at the beginning, being on the boat and the sun setting, that was beautiful. Some of the descriptions of being on the river mm-hmm. and what what the vegetation looked like was very, very good mm-hmm. as far as portraying the darkness, mm-hmm. um, both visually dark and mm-hmm. the darkness of the continent and the evil that he felt was going mm-hmm. on. I, I didn't have any any issues at all with the writing. I will say that I think it is a crime against humanity that teenagers are made to read this book in <laughs> high school. I, no wonder people hate it. It's just not a book that teenagers can even begin to process properly. I don't think we did in high school. Did you have to? No, I it think is, we read The Crucible, which is a book you probably shouldn't, a play you probably shouldn't read in high school anyway because yeah. the, yeah. the morality of that's not exactly yeah. impacted on uh, high schoolers. Couple of mice and men, I would say maybe not too. Well, but. I'm just saying this book in particular. Most teenagers haven't even lived a life long enough to understand mm. all of the stuff that's going on in this book. Yeah. You, you have you can't make the connections. You just well, I don't know. I I have learned recently about the ability, like in my own self, I've observed that I needed to learn how to exercise grace, and I was not at that place in high school. And I think that's the same of like, if you're in high school, you don't know how to understand your humanity or your humility. And so when you read something like this, you read it like you'd watch a cartoon, like it's here in Mm -hmm. passing. And then you you don't have time to process the actual uh, impact of what the story is or what it's trying to do or that time in history or anything like it. Mm -hmm. Well, and there's so much symbolism in here. I think even when a teacher would point out what the symbolism is, you just wouldn't, you're not going to get it. It's just not going to make it any might, sense. I mean, it might make sense in the context of a his- history class. Like if you're t- talking about yeah. history. If you like, talk about like the impact of colonization, right. you could possibly do it. But yeah. Right. That I feel like might give it more context than reading it in English class. Yeah. Yeah. I don't uh, know. It might be like it might be it, you could use it to like the human side of slavery yeah. but like no but i still think there's, there's other ways to do that and yeah. like why are you going to read a hundred page book when you can read a primary source right. yeah really on goodreads this book has a 3.34 star mm. rating story graph is even lower 2.95 really? stars yeah so people wow. the people who really like this book love it mm. but a lot of people do not mm. like it at all i wonder also maybe this book fits better for a setting like this instead of just like, I think if I were to have picked it up and read it, I wouldn't, it would be a totally different experience. No, this is a book to discuss with people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I think the writing and maybe it's again because I was listening to it, but it felt very conversational. It was very easy to settle into, to get into, to understand. And in that I found a lot of the descriptions or his analysis of people or of his own self-reflections to be poetic at times, uh, very lyrical, but also um, just easy to relate to and easy to understand um, and to almost to a degree easy to root for him as a person because he felt relatable in that stream of well, consciousness. I mean, it is it is a conversation. I mean, mm-hmm. Marlowe is kind of monologuing, but it is he is talking to people. So that, right, yeah. that might be why it sounds conversational. Right. Well, it feels like he's talking to you. I will say uh, the audiobook is three hours, so that's a heck of a monologue. Yeah. But 
Well, I mean, it's basically, he basically talked for a hundred pages. Yeah. I know. I'm making a joke of, I don't know if I could sit and listen to somebody for three hours. Just well, I mean, you, pro- you probably went to college lectures for that long. <laughs> no, not that long. I, I will say that the whole nested story or what are the two, framed narrative or embedded narrative that Joseph Conrad used here where he set a scene and then he allowed one of his characters to tell mm-hmm. another story. I felt like that really worked for this yeah. because he 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 occasionally would bring you back to the boat. Like he'd bring you back to reality, what's happening right here, and then he'd go back into the story in mm-hmm. Africa. So in one way, it kind of broke up all that heaviness mm-hmm. continually. You got a little bit of a break. And it just, I don't know, it just worked for me. Mm-hmm. I I was fine. I was fine with the writing mm-hmm. and yeah. the way, the structure. Yeah. I, I did struggle at the beginning. I felt like, I felt like the time on the Tams was uh, pointless, but I can see now that it was acting as the cat, not the catalyst, the catharsis of the, the break in between the pause, the bringing us all back to center before the next thing. I mean, since this was serialized, those could kind of be a way to like, mm-hmm. especially cause they happened usually right around. It's a three part book, mm-hmm. yeah. basically three chapters. And those kind of all happened right around the chapter mm. breaks. Yeah, I see what you're he saying. brings you back. So it could, yeah. yeah, it'd be a way to like you don't just hop in, in the middle of the story. You, um, yeah, yeah, like you can get back into the flow yeah. of it pretty easily. Yeah, this was serialized in 1899, and I think Blackwood's Edinburgh Magazine. I think mm. three. T- yeah, yeah, three it was chapters. They, they were serialized the three parts. Yeah. Uh, plot. Who wants to kick that off? I mean, it's kind of a like. There's no twists or anything. It's kind of kind of straight ahead. Yeah, I'm, that's pun intended. There. <laughs> yeah, Marlowe goes to the Belgian Congo to uh, pilot a, a steamer. He does that, mm-hmm. and then he tells you about one particular trip that they make to get this man Kurtz mm-hmm. and bring him back. Mm-hmm. Kurtz dies in Long the process. Night. Spoiler. Yeah. yeah. And then Marlowe gets sick and has to come back as well. Mm. And then that's mm-hmm. basically it. Yeah. I mean, it's 110 pages. Yeah. There's there's not any room for any crazy. No, you got to get in and get out. I'm like Shyamalan level Woo. twists. Yeah. And I think any twisting that does happen is of the subtle, the subtle variety of like when you meet cards or when. What like, your expectations yeah. are right. as it's opposed very, to what happens. Like the twists are kind of the different ways people view Kurtz. Yeah. 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 And I think also the twists settle in. Marlowe's perceptions changing a little bit about like going in, settling into the situation, learning about Kurtz, meeting Kurtz, coming home, and now like the disillusionment or the illusion, the under the reality is setting in. Yeah, I felt I did not feel like I. What do I want to say? This was not a propulsive read for me. Hmm. I did not feel like I could not put the book down. I struggled more with wanting to pick it back up. Once I was reading it, I was fine, but I did not feel like, oh man, I have to know what happens next. It's kind of a slow burn. Like yeah, even the action sequences towards the climax are still kind of slow. Yeah. yeah. It may just be the writing of the time does not really lend itself to the, the thriller yeah. writing, but like. Yeah. Well, and I think Marlowe as a person is a very reflective person. Yeah. So I think as he's telling these scenes, it's not a. Oh my gosh! This happened. This happened. This he's he's seeing everything and and 
feeling everything well, and talking about everything. And it's not yeah. like he's right, he's telling it right after it happened. Like it's probably yeah. a couple years after it happened. So it's kind of like a, let me put my commentary into each of these. Yeah, right. I do think that Kurtz is used as a means of getting people to keep reading mm -hmm. because you want to know who this Kurtz is. Yeah. He keeps building him up. It's like the foreshadowing, Aaron, mm -hmm. that you talked about. You, you, you want to find out who this man is. Is he the greatest thing that ever happened or what is going on with him? I just had an idea and y'all can tell me if it's the dumbest, dumb, dumb idea ever, but Kurtz, is it possible that he's used as an idea of this, I, of, of, I don't want to say colonialism, but of this pursuit of something that turns out not to be what we think it is. Could be. Like a don't meet your heroes type of thing. But maybe, but more like, hey, you want to have this place that is part of a property, but like this is the reality of what it could actually be. Or like, maybe it is don't meet your heroes. Like a mm -hmm. false expectations yeah. and disappointment type of yeah. thing. Of, yeah. Like you build something up, but like nothing can ever meet your mm -hmm. expectations. Mm -hmm. Or the evil of setting something up to fail that could never... Um, you mean the evil of setting something up to be way better than it is. Yeah. 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 And I feel like that could play into some of these other themes we've talked about, the colonialism, the, the mm -hmm. industrial revolution, things like that. But I think it's just more this idea of carts being blown so out of proportion that it's this yeah, I, drawing back to mm -hmm. that's not the it truth. It seems like everybody has a false idea of him. Mm -hmm. Like the pilgrims, even it seems almost like Marlowe starts to get, like he almost becomes obsessed with him yeah. too. Yeah. Just almost like solve the riddle, but it's yes. almost sounding like he thinks he's the best person mm -hmm. that yeah. ever was too. Just he's curious to meet this yeah. star. Yeah. 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 I think beyond the plot in this book, the plot's very straightforward. I think what makes it mentally interesting for me are all the themes that are going mm -hmm. on, like the colonization and what that actually means on the ground mm -hmm. in Africa and how removed the, the people who are pulling all the strings are. They don't know the horrors. Mm -hmm. um, and just even the title of the book, Heart of Darkness, means so many different things mm -hmm. like it can mean he uses it as different terms in the book mm -hmm. i think the first time he uses heart of darkness it means going into the unknown it's not like when i hear heart of darkness i think evil yeah. like you yeah. have there's evil mm -hmm. but he doesn't use it like that he uses it as going into darkness where you don't you can't mm -hmm. see so it mm -hmm. means you don't know mm -hmm. well there's um kurtz paints a picture and it's a woman carrying a light mm -hmm. into some sort of darkness i forget what it is i think it might yeah. be a forest but i'm yeah. not 100 percent sure but there's that yes mm -hmm. but then he does go into the idea of heart of darkness being a heart filled with evil mm -hmm. yes yeah mm -hmm. referencing kurtz that his heart was filled with evil and he mm -hmm. acted on it. Mm -hmm. I already talked about the sepulchred city, which is just a city that's dead on the inside. Mm -hmm. And um, just the whole light and dark. Mm -hmm. And then how the native people are just treated. Mm -hmm. who they are, how they're treated, that people mm -hmm. seem to be blind to that. I know it's just all of that underlying stuff that's being presented in the story, but not really talked about mm -hmm. in the story. It's kind of left up to the reader mm -hmm. 
to draw draw their own conclusions. Mm-hmm. I mean, even I looked, I looked up some of the symbolism because I was just curious. Um, the women, the intended, is she even ever named? No, she's just called the, the intended. intended. Mm-hmm. And then the tribal, I call her the tribal queen, but yeah, I don't know I think, what she I is. I think she's yeah. described as a queen. Yeah. yeah. That they are actually representative of the illusions, I mean, illusions, I-L-L-U-S, of society. Mm. Things that we hold dear, but don't necessarily represent the truth, mm. but they're important to us to maintain a civilized facade, mm. which I thought was interesting. Like the intended, she was so sure that she knew Kurtz. Like she was sure mm-hmm. she knew him completely and that he loved her. He, and when Marlo said that her name was the last thing he said mm-hmm. before he died, it wasn't true. No. He wasn't thinking about well, her at all. Mm-hmm. But it's what she wanted to hear, and it made her happy. Uh, I think an interesting thing about Marlowe is I remember he said like he doesn't like lying, not because it's immoral, but because I forget why he doesn't like it. Mm-hmm. But it's not because it's immoral, and yet at the end, he tells he does a it lie. Anyway. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, because he feels like it will do more good yeah. to not tell the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for me, and always, I always like this kind of stuff. Just digging deeper and seeing what the underlying meanings are below what the just straightforward story is. Well, I had picked up on the women as being important. Like I knew there was something there, but uh, I think that that's a very interesting point of this, the idealized mm-hmm. um, desire or, uh, yeah. I mean, I agree with your, that, that analysis. Almost like the lies that we tell ourselves to be able to maintain a civilized mm-hmm. facade. Mm-hmm. And the same goes for the the beautiful woman in Africa. Mm-hmm. She was believing lies about Kurtz mm-hmm. too. I think you could also see it as like all the stations are like uh, uh, stops on the way to like madness, and mm-hmm. Kurtz is the eventual end of madness, and that could mm-hmm. be a heart of darkness is madness. Yeah. And as you go farther up the river, all the different characters are on like a different stage to becoming mm-hmm. mad. Mad. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great way to look at it. Yeah. I guess insanity would probably be better, but madness works just as well. Yeah. yeah, that's fine. And then the rivers too, the Thames and the, mm. the Con- Congo. It would be the Congo, yeah. yeah. They, I was thinking, what? They, they have to be symbolic of something. And I'm just thinking that they are symbolic of not knowing where we're going. Mm. Like you get on this waterway yeah. and you, you're you at the mercy of the currents well, where it's going to take you. Especially the Congo. Like he talks about how he can't really see like the obstructions in the water and mm-hmm. all the snags that he can hit his boat on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, the jungle is so thick you can't really see around it. It's super bendy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of descriptive mm-hmm. of what life would be yeah. like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I intrigue your interest. I had a the different understanding of this. I thought it was like intrigue within the story, mm. like what. So I said, uh, why does Kurt seem seem like almost like a god figure? Like it, it's not explained in the book, but it's kind of a, an intriguing thing. And then why does Marlo become obs- like? There's a portion like the middle second part. It becomes like obsessed with him, and almost in the mm-hmm. same way as the Russian or any of the other people are. Mm-hmm. Like I, I wonder why. Maybe it's because that's all he's thinking about. Like he's thinking about mm-hmm. getting to him, so maybe that's why he becomes obsessed with him. Yeah, and just the curiosity, you kind of get caught up in why everybody else is mm-hmm. thinking he's so spectacular, and you want to know why. Yeah. 
I took intrigue and interest in a different direction than you, Aaron, and I just thought how much intrigue or interest did I feel about the story. And I, I will say that it took me a little bit to get into this book, and the Kurtz character, I think, is kind of the the propulsion to keep you reading to figure out what's going on. That's where I think that's where my intrigue was. But I also just liked following Marlowe and his thought process throughout throughout the book, seeing the directions that he goes. Yeah, I mean, for me, I definitely wouldn't have picked this up on my own. Um, this is not generally a story that I gravitate towards, really, in any way. Um, but I did enjoy really actually listening to it. Um, I know I've said it before, but this version that I listened to on Audible with Kenneth Branagh was fabulous. Mm-hmm. I think if it had not been him, I think I would have struggled a little bit more listening to it. And for me, I was much more interested in the thoughts of the story. So I was interested in Marlowe's reflections and his philosophy and and um, what he thought about the people and the places and all of that and s- more than the actual plot. I just found that those, for me, those sections were the most engaging and the most interesting. But I definitely thought wandered while listening to this mm-hmm. story. So I know that there's gaps in my understanding of of the plot and in, in some of the character development too. Yeah. I definitely enjoyed the symbolism and the theming of the story. I think that's where I did most of my thinking about this book. It's not, is it the most enjoyable book I ever read? No. (laughs) Is it my favorite book of all time? No. But I did. I don't feel disappointed that I read it. I'm actually very glad that I did. Mm -hmm. I understand why it's an important book in the Western canon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad I read it. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you brought it to the show. I'm glad you guys actually enjoyed this one. (laughs) I know there was some belly aching about Dune and Julia didn't (laughs) like the secret history. I I just don't like dark academia. It has nothing to do with Paige or the secret. Like, I just don't like dark academia. No, I've enjoyed reading all the books. I had issues with Dune, but that didn't mean I didn't enjoy reading it. I'm just, I'm glad I didn't read this one in high school because it would have gone the same way as Red Badge of Courage mm-hmm. down the toilet. Well, and I'm, if I had read this, I think my opinions would have been very different. The fact that I listened to it, I think, kept me more engaged. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So thanks for challenging us again. Yeah. yeah. At least it wasn't a big one. <laughs> I would not have had the capacity to uh, read a big one right now. I'm, I'm still in a pretty bad reading slump, too. So it was hard to read this little book. took me quite a while. I just had mm-hmm. a hard time sitting down with it. I think I read it over the span of three nights, but I also just brute forced my way through each part a night. I do have to say that I have the coolest edition you ever yeah. in the cool whole copy. wide yeah, world. You, your copy is very nice. Mine is yeah, just, yeah. Mine's a used book, yeah. and the, the, uh, the dust cover is very nice, but the actual... Mm. The actual cover cover isn't... Well, it's just a, it's a hardback, but it's just kind of like a, a blue background for the actual cover, but the dust cover is really nice. Did you look at, what's the publication date of that version? I think 1992. Mm. It's, a, like an, it's not fun. Well, it's, it's cause there was a forward. Mm. Like an editor came through and yeah. put a forward yeah, on it. Yeah, yeah, okay. But it was nice. There's a, a timeline of Joseph Conrad's life and like mm. the, the history that was occurring at the same time and what sort of literature was coming out too. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Okay. Logic. So this is the L of the call pile, and this is where we can talk about logic or the relationships that are present in the story. Anybody want to kick the conversation off there? I mean, I think 
logically the story made sense outside of it's not really described why Marlo becomes obsessed with Kurtz. Like he just it kind of happens. Mm-hmm. And there's not really a, a ton of relationships. Like as we said earlier, Marlo's kind of a on his own, like a lone wolf type. I guess maybe the relationship between like the manager and the rest of the company hierarchy as compared to Kurtz or the Africans' relationship to Kurtz, but none of those are explored super deeply. No, they're just presented. They're not actually even described in depth. You you pretty much draw conclusions based on behavior. Mm-hmm. So relationships are there, but they, I don't even think they're the main focus mm-hmm. of the book no. at all. For, for me... This story, at least how Marlowe is narrating, felt a lot like how The Great Gatsby is narrated or Secret History, where it felt like the narrator is, the story is happening around the narrator mm-hmm. and the narrator is just kind of there. Yeah, he's an observer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I think the relationships in that regard are very, like they're arm's lengthy kind of relationships. Mm-hmm. There's there's no development that's happening because that's, not intended to. Marlowe does keep himself pretty secluded. Um, and even when he's with Kurtz in the cabin and Mar- and Kurtz is all sick, it's still very arms reachy kind of, kind of situation. Um, so at least for me, it felt like those, those things were happening around. Right. Around the There's no emotional resonance in the relationships. Mm-hmm. It's really not the, what the book is about. A lot. It's a lot more what's happening internally with Marlowe, how he's thinking, through things that he's observing. Mm-hmm. I think logically, though, the story makes sense. Yeah. It's linear. I mean, it's pretty, yeah, it's straight ahead. Yeah. Yeah. It's not hard to grasp how the structure of the story yeah. or what he's trying to like show thing A us. leads pretty easily to thing B. Like yeah. It's not or I saw this and this is what yep. I thought. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Okay. Our last letter here is enjoyment. Um, so... I mean, I enjoyed it both times I read it. I, if I didn't enjoy it the first time, I don't think I would have made you guys read it. <laughs> that's I think that's valid. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it definitely has some pretty pointed criticisms of the Imperial project in general and specifically in Africa, but it's also, it's a, it's a very interesting study in how people react mm-hmm. to certain circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. I, I enjoyed it. I mean, as mm-hmm. much as you can enjoy a book like this, I appreciated what was written. Mm-hmm. I liked thinking through it and making connections. Mm-hmm. I also appreciate the historical value it has mm-hmm. and the impact it had. Yeah, I mean, I I'm this. I appreciate exactly what this was doing, what it did, what it is still doing. I am not sure what my rating for it is yet. I think it's a book that I have to mull over and continue to let it kind of sit for a second before mm-hmm. I can be like, mm, five, four stars or four stars. You know, like I have to let it kind of be. But my experience of listening to it, I I did enjoy. I wasn't rushing home to put my headphones on every night. But when I was listening, I I enjoyed the process of listening to it for sure. Something I forgot to mention is I don't know when exactly it came out, but the uh, the Jungle by Upton Sick. Sinclair. Yes. This would probably be the same era and so like the same kind of like almost muckraking journalism but in book form. Mm. Okay. I, I would think this could kind of be in that same general use, using a novel to attack certain business practices. Yeah. Wasn't the jungle proven to be like 
false? It, oh, yes. it was it was definitely embellished. Was, but yeah. the meatpacking industry in Chicago in the 1880s definitely not great. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that's a good comparison. I don't know what the time frames were. I, I'm I don't not know sure. If they were comparable, and but yeah, I've never read The Jungle, but yeah. like I know what it is. Yeah, this book also reminds me a little bit of. Um, Barbara King Solver's The Poisonwood Bible, mm-hmm. where a missionary family goes, I think, into the Belgian Congo in the 1940s, completely unprepared for the environment, for the customs and culture, and it's a horrible disaster. And the father of this family, who is kind of the the main... Missionary? <laughs> yeah, he, he's, the, he's the go-getter. Like, he's the one who wants to go. He goes banana, like he mm. goes off the deep end. And there's a lot of comparisons between the Poisonwood Bible and and this book too, Heart of Darkness. We would also be remiss if we didn't mention that Apocalypse Now uh, is based on Heart of Darkness. And I originally read this book because I have a thing where if I want to watch a movie that's based on the book, I have to read the book first. <laughs> and so I read it. And I've read the book twice and still haven't seen the movie, but I'll get around to that here at some point. I was going to say maybe now's the time. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's fresh in your mind. Well, that was a pretty good discussion. Mm -hmm. Definitely a darker book than we've read on the show before as a three piece in the pod episode, but it investigates some really good issues and Mm -hmm. themes and and i enjoyed it aaron thank you for Mm -hmm. being on the show thanks for having me and for bringing this book Mm -hmm. to us thanks for challenging us (laughs) (laughs) readers we will be back again in our next chapter and because it is the end of the year we're going to be doing our superlatives for 2023 so these are all of our yearbook title books Mm -hmm. like best dressed uh biggest underachiever Mm -hmm. biggest overachiever and we pick books that kind of fit those titles Mm -hmm. we're going to talk about that in our next chapter and then in the chapter after that we'll talk about our favorite books of 2023 so a good year wrap up yeah these are fun episodes Mm -hmm. to do at the end of the year thank you for joining us today while we Uh, discuss Heart of Darkness and we hope that you will join us again in our next chapter. We thank you for spending part of your day with us today and come back again. Bye friends. We'd love for you to continue today's conversation with us at the booksnug underscore podcast on Instagram and at the booksnug podcast on Facebook. All of our episodes can be found wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at our website, thebooksnugpodcast.buzzsprout.com, where show notes for every episode can be found. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at thebooksnugpodcast at gmail.com. As C.S. Lewis, one of our favorite authors famously said, you can never have a cup of tea large enough or a book long enough to suit me. And we wholeheartedly agree. Agree.